It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's Friday, February 10th. Today, the KVMR news team stretches out a bit. We're taking over an entire hour, bringing you special coverage of the United Nations International Day of Women and Girls in Science. We start the evening with a visit to Seven Hills Middle School in Nevada City. Then, intern news producer Julia Jem rewinds the clock, taking us on a historical journey. We'll follow the story of a prominent figure in the botany world of 19th and early 20th century San Francisco. You'll hear KVMR's Joyce Miller speak with Ali Stefancic. She's the Education and Outreach Coordinator for the Nevada City-based nonprofit Sierra Streams. And we hear from Boeing project engineer and NASA contractor Jamie Gabriel and Julie Hunter, an air pollution control specialist for the Northern Sierra Air Quality Management District. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. A new bill could make it easier to access PrEP, the daily pill that helps prevent HIV. KQED health correspondent Leslie McClurg explains. Until three years ago, you had to see a doctor to get a prescription for PrEP in California. Then Senator Scott Weiner of San Francisco helped pass a law that allowed patients to get a 60-day supply directly from pharmacists. But that law failed to increase access because it did not include a provision to pay back pharmacists for the time it took to prepare the pills. That's why Senator Weiner is back with a new bill that will ensure pharmacists are compensated for their time. It would also increase the patient supply to 90 days. PrEP reduces the risk of contracting HIV through unprotected sex by 99%. For the California Report, I'm Leslie McClurg. The rainbow flag honoring Pride Month will no longer fly over Huntington Beach City Hall after a vote this week by the city council there. The proposal by Councilmember Pat Burns changes the city's flag policy. Now, only flags representing governmental entities like the city of Huntington Beach and the state of California will be allowed to fly at City Hall, along with those representing branches of the armed forces. It's not about getting rid of the pride flag. This is Councilmember Burns. Our flags that we have that represent our governments are what is important to unify us and get over this divisive titling and stuff. And we just stick with our beautiful American flag and everything else. The majority of people speaking during the nearly two hours of public comment were against the change, including Stephen Martin with the Stonewall Democratic Club and Dolly Boer with Orange County's LGBTQ Center. So when I see that rainbow flying on flagpoles in cities where you probably wouldn't expect it, it is a little token, a measure of love and acceptance. The city of Huntington Beach is taking a huge step back, and you're sending a message to your queer constituents that our existence and experience doesn't matter. To the members of the queer community, flying the flag is so much more than a ceremonial gesture. It sends the message that we deserve to live lives free from hate and harassment and treated with respect. The city just started flying the rainbow flag in 2021. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Healthcare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now's the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. Guideline. Their automated 401k plans can be set up in 20 minutes. More at guideline.com/ca. Guideline, the California way to 401k. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, which bets early on exceptional people making the world better, on the web at schmidtfutures.com.
If you're looking forward to a wildflower super bloom after all the recent rain, don't go looking in the Riverside County town of Lake Elsinore. This weekend, I encourage you to focus on the Super Bowl and not the super bloom that we're not having. That's Mayor Natasha Johnson, who announced this week that trails are closed and police will be on patrol 24-7 looking out for trespassers tiptoeing through the poppies. She's not simply being a buzzkill. She's trying to avoid a scenario like 2019, when hundreds of thousands of visitors inundated the city during the last super bloom. It was kind of a, out of like out of a movie. There, the freeway, the 515 freeway was stopped. People were getting out of their cars and walking along the hillsides. There was a sea of people. Uh, you couldn't park or exit any of our five exits up and down the I-15 corridor. You couldn't go to the grocery store. Some people could not even go to work. So when you asked me what it looked like, the flowers were beautiful. The scene was a nightmare. The mayor says there is zero tolerance for illegal parking, which will get you a ticket or worse. And that's the California Report for Friday, February 10th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Brendan Willard, Danny Bringer, Jim Bennett, and Steele Muller. Our producers are Amanda Stupai and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Our interim director of news is Erica Kelly. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Now turning our attention to your forecast from the National Weather Service. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight a chance of rain and snow showers with a low around 31 degrees. Saturday, mostly sunny with a high near 51 degrees and a low around 37. Sunday, sunny with a high near 65 and a low around 38 degrees. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, snow likely with a low around 19 degrees. Saturday, partly sunny with a high near 35 and a low around 18 degrees. Sunday, sunny and clear with a high near 39 and a low around 16 degrees. The National Weather Service has issued a special weather statement for the Truckee Tahoe region through Saturday. A round of winter weather will bring minor impacts to western Nevada and the Sierra. Prepare for gusty winds and possible snow. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight increasing clouds with a low around 39 degrees. Saturday, partly sunny with a high near 57 and a low around 38. Sunday, sunny and clear with a high near 67 degrees and a low around 38. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. In the next hour, the KVMR News team tries to tackle a huge subject. In 2015, the United Nations General Assembly passed a resolution making February 11th the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. But since the KVMR newsroom hypothetically closes up shop on the weekends, we'll be delving into that subject today. I guess we'll start by going backwards. Let's rewind several decades. In 1970, women made up 38% of the U.S. workforce. 
but only 8% of science, technology, engineering, and math, or STEM, workers. This is from U.S. Census Bureau Statistics. And in 1970, it's only been 25 years since women were allowed to enter Harvard Medical School as full students. At this point, only five women have been awarded the Nobel Prize in physics, chemistry, or medicine. Shout out to Marie Curie for winning twice. And so you have some sense of comparison, over 250 men had received a Nobel in the same categories by that time. By 2019, women made up 48% of all workers. But despite representing almost half of America's labor force, they'd increased their presence in STEM fields to only 27%. While men, making up 52% of all U.S. workers in 2019, continued to dominate STEM, representing 73% of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics workers. Back to 2023, and I'm sitting in Mrs. O'Callaghan's Seven Hills 7th grade classroom, waiting to see if any of the students want to talk to me, a stranger with a microphone, about STEM. And not just STEM, but an annual initiative launched by the United Nations called the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. Its goal is to address problems like that huge gap in statistics I just mentioned, inequity in the workforce, and to promote equal access and participation of girls and women in the STEM fields. So we're going to pause because um, we have a guest speaker this morning. Um, this is Kelly Reese from KVMR Radio. When Mrs. O'Callaghan asks if anyone would like to speak with me, there are some tentative looks, but a few hands shoot up. Those hands are from the girls in the class, and I actually end up talking to several students. I speak with 12-year-old Mackenzie and 12-year-old Faith first. There's Elena, Emery. Hi, I'm Elena, and I'm 12 years old. Hi, I'm Emery, and I'm 12 years old. Isla and Mia came to speak with me together. Um, I'm Mia, and I'm also 13 years old. Then there was the R trio. I'm Rama, and I'm 13. I'm Ricardo, and I'm 12. I'm Rio, and I am 13. And we started with a conversation about what automatically comes to mind when we think of science and scientists. Did they, as seventh graders, picture men, women, aliens, in lab coats, or was it a more abstract image? Uh, when I think of a scientist, I think of somebody who is dedicated, and I don't know how to explain it other than, like, I, I was watching this show once, and somebody said, when I pick up a puzzle, I can't put it down. So that's kind of what I think of. Okay, so when I think of a scientist, I think of, like, goggles, like a lab coat, like, really into, like, those explosions, kind of, of, like, thinking of what to put together. Well, I think about someone in a lab coat, some safety goggles on. I think of, like, a mad scientist with, like, a bunch of beakers with all sorts of liquids studying something. I think of a scientist um, as somebody who's interested in solving things that haven't been solved yet. Uh, my mind is like goes to people like Marie Curie or Albert Einstein, of course, because they're quite popular in media. Normally, I feel like they kind of have, like, stoic expressions in photos for some reason. I think stoic's a good word. I envision someone with, like kind of like dark, coarse black hair okay. and kind of like okay. tannish skin and just like black clothing because that's what one of my mom's friends who's a rocket scientist looks like. We talk about famous scientists. Marie Curie is a scientist that I really like reading about and learning about. Her and her husband, they were like very into like, you know, looking at different elements and stuff and it was like really intense and they like I'm pretty sure there was, like, a poisonous element that kind of, like, wiped them out a little bit. 
I'm pretty sure she came from Poland. If any of them are interested in a career in the sciences... Yeah, I want to be a marine biologist. Me too. Really? Yeah. So you're going to pursue it as a career? I really hope so. I want to be a surgeon. So, yes. And their thoughts on the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. It's really important that we're honoring a lot of the female scientists in our society because they're doing a lot of great things for this world. Now, there's a lot more recognition towards women in science, but like back in the like 1900s, there wasn't at all. So just having a day to remember the people that like came before women were actually recognized and like having a day to like just kind of recognize them and everything that they did is really important. I think it's important to appreciate it because sometimes girls do get treated differently and less just than boys. But I think that one day of doing it, I don't think it's going to change a lot. But I think it is important to appreciate the things that girls can do. I think it's really important because, um, like, as we all said, we don't really know a lot about a bunch of um, women scientists. And I think they should be um, recognized more. I think it makes sense. But I also think that it shouldn't just be one day, it should be like every day. As I listen to their thoughtful answers, and the way some of the students so confidently proclaim their intentions to enter into STEM professions, I can't help but think of Marie Curie, who many of them mentioned, and who, like Elena said, was from Poland, but was forced to move to another country so she could pursue degrees in physics, chemistry, and mathematics. According to the United Nations, women are typically given smaller research grants than their male colleagues. And while women represent over 33% of all researchers, only 12% of members of National Science Academies are women. Female researchers tend to have shorter careers that aren't as lucrative, their work is underrepresented in high-profile journals, and they're often passed over for promotion. And in cutting-edge fields such as artificial intelligence, only one in five professionals is a woman. Which, for me, really underscores why this day was created. As UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez says, we can all do our part to unleash our world's enormous untapped talent, starting with filling classrooms, laboratories, and boardrooms with women scientists. Get ready to be transported back over a century as KVMR News producer Julia Jem leads us through the tale of one of California's greatest botanists. If you've ever set foot in the California Academy of Sciences, you owe a debt of gratitude to Alice Eastwood. It's been an unfortunate trend throughout modern history for the ideas, accomplishments, discoveries, and successes of intelligent women to be casually plagiarized or stolen, with their identities being purposely disregarded or even concealed. The International Day of Women and Girls in Science provides an excellent opportunity to reflect on the stories of accomplished women in science from years past. I'm Julia Jem. Today, I'll be recognizing Alice Eastwood, a pioneering botanist, explorer, and naturalist. Plants play an imperative role in our lives. They filter the air that we breathe, serve as key ingredients in life-saving drugs and medications, act as a primary food source, the list goes on. The research of botanists is equally important given that we can only properly utilize plants when we can confidently identify them and understand how they work. Female scientists, like Alice Eastwood, make up a considerable percentage of the innovative botanists throughout history, defying sexist laws and societal barriers in the pursuit of knowledge. So who exactly was Alice Eastwood? She was born in Toronto, Canada in 1859, and following her mother's death, which occurred when she was only six, Alice was sent to live with her uncle Hallowell, an experimental horticulturalist. This is where her interest in botany took root. 
He taught her plant names, gifted her plant-related literature, and bonded with her over their shared passion for horticulture. Partridgeberry and wild raspberry were young Alice's favorite wildflowers. When she and her sister moved to a convent in Ontario, Canada, an elderly French priest gardener, Father Pew, continued to nurture her early botanical interest until she joined her father in Denver, Colorado in 1873. Here, Alice found wonder in the vegetation of the Alpines. She was elected class valedictorian of her high school after years of overcoming obstacles and challenging situations. Upon graduating, she received two gifts, Porter and Coulter's Synopsis of the Flora of Colorado, 1874, and Gray's Manual of the Botany of the Northern United States, 1878. Alice learned to ride horses during the summer following her graduation with the intention of exploring and collecting vegetation in more inaccessible places. Fearless and clever, she explored the rugged mountain terrain by herself, studying the flora and fauna and becoming increasingly experienced in botany, geography, and geology. In May of 1887, 28-year-old Alice guided 66-year-old Alfred Russell Wallace, the famous naturalist and pioneer in evolutionary biology, up Gray's Peak on a three-day botanical collecting trip. In 1890, Alice started working at the California Academy of Sciences on Market Street in San Francisco, but returned to Colorado in 1892. That summer, she was offered an invitation to join Kate Brandigy as joint curator of the California Academy. Kate offered Alice her entire salary by foregoing $75 a month. At the time, however, Alice was romantically involved with a journalist and chose to remain in Colorado because of that. But when he unfortunately passed away of tuberculosis, Alice accepted the Academy position. Then, in 1893, Kate Brandigy retired and moved to San Diego. Alice was named the Academy's Curator of Botany. For over 50 years, Alice worked there, organizing and expanding the Academy's botanical collection from the Sierra and Coast Mountain ranges. She was undeniably dedicated to her work. In 1906, when an earthquake struck San Francisco and destroyed the Academy of Sciences building, Alice physically saved more than a thousand irreplaceable and most valued plant species by entering the shattered building and carrying them by hand to safety. Not just that, but she also hand-recovered valuable and important books from other departments and unbroken records dating back to 1853. In a letter she wrote for the journal Science discussing the event, she recalled, quote, Not a book from my department was I able to save, nor a single thing of my own, except my favorite lens, without which I would feel helpless. In 1949, Alice retired as curator at age 90. Two genera were named for her, Aliciella and Eastwoodia. A giant grove of redwood trees is named after her, and a rare California shrub belonging to the sunflower family, Eastwoodia elegans. She died of cancer on October 30, 1953, at age 94 in San Francisco. Alice Eastwood's achievements, in addition to her resilient, selfless, and intelligent nature, are reminiscent of why exactly a day like the International Day of Women and Girls in Science is so important. For KVMR, I'm Julia Jem. Up ahead, KVMR's Joyce Miller speaks with Sierra Streams Institute Education and Outreach Coordinator and 7th grade gold medalist Science Olympiad, yes, gold medalist, Ali Stefancic. I feel like so many people who love nature, there's just endless... Uh, observations and learning that you can get from just spending time outside and looking around and observing what's around you. And it's endlessly rewarding. That's the voice of Ali Stefancic. Ali grew up in New York State as, she says, a certified nerd. Twelve years ago, after studying ecology and environmental education, she moved to Nevada City. Today, Stefancic manages community education programs for the nonprofit Sierra Streams Institute. 
Her career in science education has its roots in her childhood experiences with nature and also grew from a prescient suggestion from a high school teacher. But more about that later. Here's Allie talking about Sierra Streams Institute. Sierra Stream's mission is to connect people, water, and science. So helping to bridge the gap between science and research and what people's lived experiences in their local environments. And just thinking about ways that we can research uh, local issues and our local environment so that people can use that to, to better connect with the environment and also to think about how to manage their lands and resources. And so I am the education and outreach coordinator for Sierra Streams. How did you become interested in science and the environment? So I actually grew up in upstate New York in a very rural area And so all my life, I just spent most of my time uh, hanging out in the creek that was behind my house. And I would look for all the little stream bugs, even before I knew what they were or knew that they had any importance. In high school, I took an environmental science class, and my environmental science teacher gave me a a book of prose actually by Gary Snyder. (laughs) And so I read that and I was like, wow, I think I want to study the environment for my life. And so that was just kind of what I did. Uh, I ended up coming out west and went to school in Washington State and have kind of followed my passion and curiosity for the environment. When you were growing up, did you receive any special mentoring or education focused specifically on inspiring girls to study science or on closing the gender gap in science? Where I lived was in the watershed for New York City's drinking reservoirs. So we had um, special additional money coming into our schools from the state to teach us about watersheds and healthy water and things that people can do to keep the waterways healthy. I actually got to go to a special Department of Environmental Conservation youth summer camp for free. They gave out a few scholarships to students in our area And no one else in my class wanted to take it. And I was like, oh, yes, please. I want to go to nature science camp. But at that time, there wasn't as much concentration being paid on the the gender gap in science. And I'm so happy that I have since been involved in some girls in science programs and to, to see it as a trend to increase, to increase girls' involvement in science. I worked mostly with grade school girls and then adults, so I might have a skewed view, but I would almost say that the girls can be more interested in it, and they're super excited. The interest is always there, and it's just at some point, someone might say science isn't cool, and that will go to their heart. So just reminding everyone that science is cool. (laughs) So did you run into that when you were young? 
Yeah, definitely. But I already knew that I was a little bit of a nerd because I did Science Olympiad, which is like a uh, a club that you can be in. And then you go to a competition. I won a gold medal at the Science Olympiad States in <laughs> New York when I was in seventh grade. So I was like a certified nerd. And then I did Envirothon when I got older, which is the environmental version <laughs> of the same thing. What's your advice for girls who might want to make a career in science? Find something that makes you curious. Science is all about curiosity. And so whatever part of the world, the natural world, there's all different kinds of sciences. So if um, you're curious about people and how people interact, you know, that can be a science too. So just find that passion, that thing that you're endlessly curious about and just keep studying it and reach out to people. Um, the number of times that I just cold emailed scientists, my like dream scientists who I was kind of interested about and I was like, hey, I read some of your papers or I read this and I thought you were really cool and I wanna know how you got there. I would just suggest that they do that because everyone's pretty excited to get that kind of outreach. Growing up in a very rural area, it's hard to like think of jobs, what jobs even exist out in the world beyond like most of the jobs I knew in my town. There were like teachers, um, people who worked at the corner store, um, and there's a lot of stone quarrying in my area and nurses. So it took a little while of just me all the time being like, what do you do for a living and what does that look like day to day? Just to get a picture for what I might want to do in my future. I'm talking to Ali Stefancic of Nevada City. She manages the community education programs at Sierra Streams Institute. In your education or your career, have you observed any structural issues that present obstacles to achieving gender equality in science? Luckily, in environmental science, it's not so much a boys club, and so it's easy to find um, women role models or to not be excluded from leadership roles, whereas in certain other sciences, there can, there can kind of be that like, you know, they're, they're my friends, so they're gonna promote me instead. Luckily, environmental sciences, I feel like are, it's pretty even gender-wise, but I think one area that's still really being figured out is having better policies in place so that women who do want to start a family are able to have a, a work schedule that's flexible enough to allow them to do that. Thinking about like how much time a woman might have to take off if she does want to start a family and how that might impact her ability to move forward in her career. Are there any other changes you'd like to see? One of the things that I think can really help inspire especially younger people is just having in education especially and because that's what I'm in when you're talking about science when you're talking about the history of science is equally representing or uplifting the women in history because there's been so many women who have really impacted our scientific understanding of the world but if you ask a student uh, to imagine a scientist. So many times they still just imagine an old white guy in a lab. But, 
you know, if if when we're sharing about science, we we show all the different diversity of the scientists throughout time and around the world, even currently, who have really made big impacts and that can show people like they can identify with that person they can be like if they can do it then I can too you know just thinking about how we do science education is making sure to represent someone who looked like the diversity of the students in the room for all those girls who want to grow up to be little girl bosses there's definitely a lot of careers in the sciences um, that can get you to your life goals kind of definitely a lot of jobs in labs or working for the state there's a lot of great careers in the sciences that I don't think many folks are as aware of so that's what science can offer to women what do women offer science science is based on observations and dissecting different observations because some science areas especially have been um, largely driven by men for so long. Women have a fresh perspective to offer, a fresh way to analyze the data, a fresh set of eyes. And so you never know if you might be the person who completely changes our understanding of something just because just a long history of, of people have been thinking about it the same way. And if you just think about it, um, some problem, some question, then you might be able to be the person who makes a new discovery because of, of your fresh perspective. So since you've um, been here in Nevada City, have you had any contact with Gary Snyder or since he was, it sounds like he was kind of your entry point into yeah. some of the... Um, I have seen him around town, but I have always been a little starstruck to say anything to him. But I have seen him before and just turned bright red. <laughs> and in my, in my head been like, oh my goodness, there he is. <laughs> when I initially applied for a job in Nevada City after going to school in Olympia, I didn't know anything about Nevada City. And I had just been applying for jobs randomly after college. I wanted somewhere a little bit sunnier than Olympia. And I googled Nevada City. And on the Wikipedia page, like towards the bottom, it just said like famous people who live there. And he was on the list. <laughs> and so that's how I knew I had found the right place. And here I am 12 years later. <laughs> If you're just joining us, that was Joyce Miller speaking to Ali Stefancic as part of the KVMR News special celebrating the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. Coming up, I'll be speaking with Boeing project engineer Jamie Gabriel. All right, I guess we'll just start off. Can you tell me a bit about your background? Because you grew up in Nevada County, is that correct? Yes, I, I moved to Grass Valley when I was around five years old. And I lived there through all of my younger years, graduated from Bear River High School before I went to college. Do you mind telling me about the trajectory of your career, how you ended up from Bear River to your position at Boeing now? Yeah, so I went to Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California and majored in physics transferred to Florida Institute of Technology in Melbourne, Florida, and did two and a half years to get my degree in astrophysics. And then I decided to get my master's degree. So I have a master's degree in space systems. 
Arts. And as soon as that was done with, and I graduated with that degree, I got hired on with Boeing at Kennedy Space Center, working the shuttle and space station payloads. So launching science and modules to the space station on the shuttle program. So actually, this Saturday, the 11th, will be my 15th year anniversary with Boeing, and I've worked. I've worked with Boeing Space Station, Boeing SLS, which is the Space Launch System, which is the new the new rocket that NASA uses that will be going to the moon and Mars. I worked on that for almost five years. So uh, yeah, once the shuttle program ended, I actually moved up to Alabama. I'm still Alabama where I am now to work the SLS program. And once I was done working that, I transferred back to the International Space Station and worked payload integration for all the science experiments that will go up to the space station to be performed up there and transferred to a new program called the NASA Docking System, which is essentially the docking system that's up on the space station for modules to dock to the space station. They had a new iteration of it that would be the new docking system on the deep space station that we're developing. And now I'm a project engineer for space station so basically, my job is just a higher level of an integration engineer, like a, a scientist or a school group or a small company has a specific science experiment or hardware or something that they want to fly into space, specifically on the space station, maybe even some small satellites that need to launch from the, the rocket or space station. And so they have this great idea and they bring it to NASA and say, I'd like to get this up there. But then you have somebody who's the go-between between NASA and, say, the scientists, and that's what I do. Was there anything that you studied in school or read or watched early on that created this interest? Or was it just something that naturally evolved through your education? Uh, it's a little bit of both, but really it's kind of, it's totally nerdy. But um, when Apollo 13 came out, I, I saw that. And it just kind of, I don't know, flipped a switch in my brain um, that, that was just fascinating to me. It was 1995 when that came out. And then sophomore year in high school, I realized that maybe I could actually do something with it. And I decided to start pursuing getting a degree in college that would help me in that direction. The idea was to be an astronaut, pursue becoming an astronaut. But I loved the science and everything uh, and the engineering part of it that wasn't astronaut space travel related, that it was just a bunch of people on the ground who had to do all the work to put those people in space. Do you have a favorite project that you worked on in your career? Yeah, I think other than the space station itself, out of all of my programs, the space station, I call it my baby. I love working on the space station. But a very specific project that is my favorite it was a very large payload that went up on the shuttle. It was, a, it was called the AMS. It's still up there. And I got to work with international partners for it. I got to be very involved with being actually in the shuttle body itself, getting it all integrated, ready for space flight. And it was just such an experience that stuck in my head with a great group of people and being able to be science nerdy with it, not just dealing with hardware, but also talking the science with the scientists who own it. It was early on in my career, but it has stuck with me since then. So did they have scientists from all different countries working on that in tandem? Yes, they did. So we had the Japanese, we had the Canadians, oh, we had the Italians, and then, of course, the United States was all working on that one major package that we sent up. 
So as you said, you live in Alabama, but you come all the way out to California for a week in the summer for Tech Trek, which is a STEM summer camp at UC Davis for middle school girls uh, that's sponsored by the American Association of University Women. Why is it important to you to make such an effort to be actively involved in that program? I think about um, what it was when I was that age and the opportunities that you do or don't have, depending on where you are in the country. You know, the more I talk to uh, every time that I've done this, every year I've done this, uh, the conversations I've had with some of these girls, it's just they're, they're thirsting to have different avenues to be able to expand on their dreams for whether it's science-related or any of the, the STEM extensions, that they want to be able to have these opportunities. But, you know, you don't think Northern California has space travel opportunities for people or to be in aerospace or mechanical engineering, especially eighth grade girls. And so I think it's just super important to provide the opportunities for people to at least get a taste for things that are offered that's outside of their their bubble so that they can know that, that they really have things to work towards with the years ahead of them with school and college. Have you seen changes in the number and roles of women in your field over the years? Yes, I have. When I went to college for astrophysics and space systems, um, women were a minority in those classes. Most of my younger career with Boeing was mainly men on the teams that I worked with. But now I would say that it's probably 50-50 with the teams that I have that I work with now. And we have a lot of women that are in higher positions within Boeing and NASA that, for whatever reason, were not there before. And so I definitely see an increase and more of an acceptance for having women in those those areas within the, the program. And what have these changes meant, if they've meant anything, or have they made a difference in anything in the environment or in what's created or in policies? I would have to say I, I can't honestly answer for a wider impact, but I do notice within the, I guess you could say, bubble of NASA, aerospace engineering, even the um, smaller commercial companies that uh, we interface with, that it just, it allows for kind of tying back to why I support the camp is that it just allows for there to be a visual representation, if nothing else, for the opportunities that women can have and that it just allows allows the companies to just expand in that in that environment. My husband works for a female-owned small private company that's also a NASA contractor, and just the exposure that that can bring to the company and the new programs and projects that they get to work on because it's a woman-owned who is able to, to just have a different insight into how it all works. I think that would be the impact that I see directly around me. It's been written about a lot, obviously, but a 2020 article in Science Magazine specifically pointed to different studies and highlighted three challenges that in polling women across science careers repeatedly said, I guess they were the three top challenges. They cited a lack of a sense of belonging, harassment and bullying, and unequal compensation compared to men. 
Was there any point during your education or career that you witnessed or experienced any kind of discriminatory behavior due to you being a woman in STEM? I would say overall, the majority of my time, I have not had any direct impact except for one very specific um, couple years in my career when I was working SLS. I did work with a lead, so I worked under him on a team, and he was uh, very expressly treating the women on his team differently and would make derogatory comments about our abilities and would clearly give the male leaders on the team more to do or different things to do than us. But I've had other female coworkers tell me about their experiences over the years and how they've had to just pull through um, feeling uncomfortable in their environment. But once they got to the other side, they were pretty confident in their abilities and that it was definitely more of an issue with the people who were causing the problems than them directly. The International Day of Women and Girls in Science was created in part to promote what the United Nations says is the full and equal access and participation of women and girls in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, or STEM fields. Do you think days like this make a meaningful impact, or do you think they're purely symbolic, a bit of both? I would have to say a little bit of both. <laughs> and I say that because my side of it is it does not it is not impactful to me. And that's just because without sounding like I'm tooting my own horn, but my self-assuredness and who I am and my abilities. However, I do think it is impactful for younger girls, younger women, or any women who are actually being directly impacted by the negativity of women in the workforce or women in the studies in college, that I think it is important that it is there and that it is something that can be used as a beacon for those who need to have that to pull through the difficulties or the younger ones who need to have that to see the opportunities that are before them. Thank you so much for, for all of your time. No problem. Anytime. You were just listening to Jamie Gabriel, project engineer with Boeing and contractor at NASA. Coming up, our final interview of the evening. KBMR News Director Claudio Mendoza sits down with Julie Hunter, an air pollution control specialist for the Northern Sierra Air Quality Management District. Hunter's also an ARA, an air resource advisor, deploying to wildfire sites and working with multiple agencies to provide smoke impact and forecast information based on the best available science. Julie, I want to talk to you about your work, but first, where did you grow up? I grew up in, born and raised in Nevada. I was born in Carson City. Uh, ended up moving to the Reno area when I was doing my master's degree because it was closer to uh, UNR and DRI and the commute. And um, yeah, native Nevada. Where did you get your undergrad? So I, I did both my graduate and my undergraduate at UNR. I ended up really, really liking chemistry, which is odd, but I got a minor in chemistry. My professor uh, was just kind of a mentor of mine, and um, he actually coerced me into getting my master's degree. I didn't want to. Um, he was like, there's this great scholarship, Julie, you should really you should really go for it. And I was like, okay. So I, I did, I went for it and I got the full, the full scholarship because my grades were so good. So it was an opportunity and I'm glad I took it because in my, my master's degree work, I had the opportunity to go to Antarctica, which was super cool. Did some work there for about four months in the field. During my undergraduate, I also uh, did a 
summer in uh, Yellowstone as a fisheries biologist. That was another fun opportunity, and it really got me aware of the fact that I did not want to be a fisheries biologist. So that was a good thing out of that. Yeah, the opportunities when you're a student, I would tell anybody who is a student to take any opportunity to travel, research, do research wherever, wherever research can take you. Your undergraduate degree, you minored in chemistry. What was the major? Yeah, the major was in environmental science, yes. So the minor in chemistry and then my master's is um, environmental science with a emphasis in public health. So it's environmental science and public health. Did you always love science growing up? Yeah, I always did love science. I wanted to be a marine biologist. My mom and dad would take me to Bodega Bay all the time. That's where we would travel as a family, my brother. And there was a, a marine lab there, so they took me into the marine lab, and I got to check it out, and I was like, this is really cool. So when I started school, I wasn't too sure what I wanted to do. You know, I got all the basics out of the way and then just started with a generic environmental science degree. And focused on all things environmental science. And then for my master's, I did my focus in limnology and water quality and water toxicology. Turns out being a marine biologist in the desert, there's really no options. But I did start out in water quality. I was doing some work on the Truckee River, doing some um, microbe sampling there and microinvertebrate sampling uh, in the river. So it oddly enough, I did have a passion for water and wanted to steer my career that way, but it ended up, I steered into air quality, and I've been in air quality for about 17 years. And what's kind of neat about it and odd is that it's public health, you know, public health protection, I think, is, is the passion kind of from the beginning was my passion for toxicology and, you know, what kind of toxins did what harm to what animals wherever and it just morphed into you know we have air toxins that are polluting our our lungs and just found it to be my niche i'm talking with julie hunter an air pollution control specialist for the northern sierra air quality management district julie is also an air resource advisor ARAs are experts in air quality and smoke dispersion science, and when wildfire strikes, they deploy to provide smoke impact and forecast information to address public health concerns, smoke risk to transportation safety, and firefighter exposure. I've been actually champing at the bit to ask you about the ARA work. Describe to me what a typical deployment to a wildfire would be like. So I've been doing this since 2018. I believe I've been deployed to 11 fires. The phone call comes and you see the name, your heart drops and, and all of the nerves, you know, you just, just get all kind of spun up like, oh boy, here we go. So you get the phone call and then what happens is our, our program lead has to put in a, an actual order to the incident management team of that fire and that goes through resource ordering. And then typically, it depends, sometimes I've waited a couple days for a resource order to come through. But you you take that time to prepare and pack, and make sure you got your stuff ready, do a little research on the fire, where you're going. Uh, sometimes you have no idea where where the incident camp is at all. You have an address, and so you you find that location. And sometimes when you get there, there's nothing there, and they have moved camp, or there's no cell service, so you're not quite sure. You kind of got to hit the road and and go with the flow. And that's kind of really what you have to do throughout the whole fire. Typically, I would sit with the what's called the IMET and the F-band. That's incident meteorologist and the fire behavior analyst. 
So the three of us between weather, what the weather's doing, drives the fire behavior, drives the smoke and the smoke impacts. So we kind of work together as a team. We do work in the planning section. Uh, so once we once once you find camp and you <laughs> check in and you find your folks, um, then we have to have our product, what's called a smoke outlook. We need to get that out by about 8 o'clock in the morning so that the public information officers can distribute that information to the public. And then about that time is when you, you hit the field, set up any monitors or check monitors that are already out in the field, do maintenance on monitors. Uh, so then you do your call, you report out on the fire, and we discuss weather, you know, smoke conditions with North Ops in, in California, South Ops, San Joaquin forecasters, CARB, meteorologists, and then any of the ARAs that are out on a wildfire. Uh, and then you, you come back to, to camp for planning meeting and then a, another night briefing if there's a night shift. Then we work the rest of the night to kind of prepare for the next day's outlook. It's a very long day, typically from 5 o'clock to 10 o'clock, uh, easy. But um, I enjoy it. it. It's great when when you step into an incident management team, you're like family, and we all have one common, one common goal is to try to put that fire out safely. That's kind of what uh, a day in the life of an air resource advisor. I have to ask... What's the the gender balance in, in the ARA? It's a very good mix. It, I think there's just as many women as there are men. And I'll say that for also the incident management teams. Um, I've seen incident commanders that are women. Most of them are men. But when I am in a yurt or an office, I am not the only woman. And I, that, I think that goes for, I can't speak for the men and women out in the field fighting, you know, on the ground. I think there's a pretty good mix. We see them come in and out of camp sometimes. Um, proudly, I would say it's a pretty close 50-50 with women and men in that field. And has that been that way since you have been in the the work or has it changed? Yeah, I, I think it's changed over the years. I think I'm trying to remember when I first took the class, I think there was only about five women in in my training class of 2018 and i think our class was pretty full and we had 30 people but we do all have monthly community ara community calls where we all have a zoom call and those those calls are now getting bigger and bigger much more people but i i'd say again a 50 50 mix of female and male air resource advisors now have you ever experienced overt discrimination i have never experienced sexual discrimination or harassment out on a, on an assignment but I was I was warned about it when I first went on to my first assignment in the position I'm in now it's I, I'm just super happy with where I'm at now in our office in Portola it's all women there's four of us um, and in the Grass Valley office there are three women and two two males um, so it's it's just kind of a beautiful thing. I know I, my air pollution control officer, our our boss, the head of the district, I think is is one of a very few handful of women APCOs, is what they call them. Um, and she she talks about that a lot, like in her career of her being a female APCO um, is is really something to be proud of. You know that 
she made it to that position. So, it yeah, I mean, I you know, I think overall it's been a struggle for women in any field, but I think we're breaking down those barriers. Um, a lot of women have spoke up about abuse and sexual abuse at fire camps or um, in the office place, and it takes those women to speak up for anything to change. Um, so thankfully, there, there's been a couple of heroes out there who have who have spoken about it and and really made a difference. How do we, as a society, how can we better support young women, encourage girls to get into STEM? I'd say, and I think that this is great with such as what I I mentioned to you before. I was uh, I had somebody else reach out to me about STEM and women in science. Um, and what that, what, what that program is, is matching up women in the career with students, with female students who are looking to get in as kind of a mentor and a coach. And, and maybe that's how, how we could approach it. I think that mentoring, that coaching, um, maybe speaking to high schools about how things have changed and, and how they're, they, they, they should be just as accepted. Julie Hunter, it was really, really great talking to you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you, and I do enjoy sharing what I do with other people. So thank you. A common thread connecting individuals we spoke with for this project was how ideas from visual representation Whether it's a trailblazing scientist, an iconic 90s movie, your mom's friend who's a rocket scientist, a group of wonderfully nerdy students competing for science trophies, bolsters ambition for your life's trajectory, and sometimes plants the seed altogether. And that goes to show how representation generates, molds, and inspires ideas and actions. Thanks for spending the 8th Annual International Day of Women and Girls in Science with the KVMR News Team. We heard from students at Seven Hills Middle School news producer Julia Jem about a historical scientific figure, education and outreach coordinator for Sierra Streams Institute, Ali Stefancic, Jamie Gabriel, a Boeing project engineer and NASA contractor, and Julie Hunter, an air pollution control specialist for the Northern Sierra Air Quality Management District. All these interviews will be available online at kvmr.org. KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you and South Yuba Club, offering over 100 classes weekly, including cycling, yoga, swim, pickleball, senior classes, and more, located in Grass Valley at 130 West Berry Hill Drive. More information online at southyubaclub.com. And California Solar, a local employee-owned solar co-op in Grass Valley, serving Nevada County, now including the greater Truckee area, specializing in residential solar and systems, including battery backup. California Solar at cal-solar.coop. Let's try 